Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I'm delighted today to introduce Jesse Green. Jesse is the Project and Development Associate at the Institute for Ecological Civilization, or ECOCIV. Prior to ECOCIV, Jesse worked to support Maasai land rights with Adumu Impact, where she is now a board member. Her interdisciplinary background includes expertise in climate resiliency, community-based conservation, indigenous land rights, well-being economies, and responsible tourism. Jesse earned an MSc merit from the University of Sussex Institute for Development Studies. Her dissertation explored the impacts of land tenure on adaptability to climate change for smallholder farmers with examples from India and Zambia. She completed her undergraduate degree in environment and development at McGill University with minors in international development and social entrepreneurship. In her free time, Jesse enjoys hiking, crocheting, and sewing. I had such a nice time interviewing Jesse and speaking with her. She has a broad perspective and has had some amazing life experiences that speak to the work she's doing in our place in society at the moment. It was just a delight to talk with her. I know you're going to enjoy the conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Jesse Green, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you for having me, Brian. Well, I'm delighted to talk to you. Thank you for making time. And I just want to begin where I always begin and just ask the question, based on your interests and the work you're doing, what do you see as the chasm or chasms in society? Yeah, so I think broadly speaking, you know, I work in the environmental sector mostly. I see a really big chasm between um, science and traditional and indigenous knowledge and then effective implementation. You know, the vast majority of challenges that we face, as you talked about on your podcast, from climate change to pollution to habitat loss, like we have the functional knowledge to address them, whether it be from scientific knowledge or indigenous knowledge. We know we know the ways in which they can be fixed, but our socioeconomic and political systems are often what get in the way. You know, as a young, a young teenager, a young undergrad, I wanted very much to focus on the knowledge, on the literal learning and figuring out the solutions on a practical level. I really shied away from classes about politics and economics because I found them so frustrating. I couldn't understand why people seem to so often take actions that were not only against the benefit of the whole, but actually against their own self-interest. And now I'm so glad that some of those classes were required because they've informed so much of my understanding of what you call the chasm. Um, I think there's just a really big gap, chasm, um, between what we know and how we get there. And what is often the problem is our socioeconomic and political system. Yeah. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that because... I've had several guests on that talk generally about this, but how do you how do you think about the the social and political systems and and why they're not working? It's challenging because we're so embedded in them that it's hard to get a good perspective of what is reality and what is something that we can change. You know, what what do we have control over? And I think something that's interesting about our modern era is that we are becoming much more intentional about the way that we address problems. I think in the past, we've been very reactive and like things like revolutions and things have occurred as a reaction to something else. And now we're, we're much more intentional and kind of taking the time and saying, this is what I want my society to look like. 
these are the changes that I want to see in in my community and how can we get there? What can I do about it? And being, I, I keep saying intentional, but being intentional about the changes that we want to see in our communities. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I feel like in some ways we have a lot of discussion about climate change and solutions and so forth and other problems, but not much intentionality. I'm curious, does that intention, are you speaking about your own interests and experiences or more about ecological civil, the Institute for Ecological Civilization? Both. I think like in my own personal life, like it's something that I definitely am actively working on, you know, just being intentional, even about like things like what I put into my body and like how I treat my friends and family and just being intentional instead of reactive. But then at EcoCiv, I think we're also asking questions that are like much more specific and targeted and asking questions about like, okay, not just what is the problem and how can you fix it, but why is that problem a problem? And why are those challenges cropping up and, and what can we do about to address the why? I'm also really interested about, because you're, you're talking about your own personal uh, sort of perspective and actions and so forth, just in general, in your day-to-day life, outside of the work you do, do you feel like other people have that same sort of sentiment that they're moving towards intentionality in different ways than you've seen in the past? I like to think so. I like, I think I'm slowly surrounding myself with people that have that same mindset because it is a value that is something that is important to me. Um, but you know, it's hard to it's hard to speak for society broadly because I've only met, you know, a couple hundred, maybe a thousand people in my life. So it is challenging. That's exactly right. Uh, but it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher, of course. So I see students all the time. And one of the things I'm really interested in is the extent to which they sort of perceive their ability to make change or their interest in intention as opposed to just diagnosing problems and complaining about it. And I do think that there are a number of young people who are yeah, just interested in thinking about the intention. Why do we have problems? As you said earlier, I love that. And I guess that leads me then to your organization, the Institute for Ecological Civilization. I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of what that institute is all about. Yeah, so the Institute for Ecological Civilization, or we call it EcoCiv, so if I I refer to it as that, that's what I'm talking about, um, really is centered around the idea of envisioning an ecological civilization. And that kind of means a, a human society that is structured to promote a cooperative relationship between humans and their environment or their biosphere. It's about envisioning a world where all forms of life can thrive. And that includes everything from the basics of safe water and healthy and sufficient food to much more complex aspects of society, like economic well-being, which is the program that I primarily work on. So I I find this really interesting. Just the name alone is really fascinating. Ecological civilization implies that we don't have an ecological civilization. So what is the sort of the sort of fissure between humans and nature or ecology, ecological systems? Yeah, for me personally, it is about recognizing that the planet is a deeply interconnected system. And I think the the chasm is in that understanding. All of its living and non-living components are responsive to each other. And again, we must be intentional about the way that we treat each component from a person to a pebble. It's 
every single component is part of this system. And I think as a society, we don't tend to treat it that way. And the other thing about an ecological civilization is that you also have to recognize we don't necessarily know exactly what like an ideal ecological civilization looks like. It's not about prescribing a utopia or prescribing a set vision. I think realistically, societies are always evolving. And what we decide is an ecological civilization today may not hold true in 50 or 100 years. So it's about recognizing two things. It's about recognizing that it's an interconnected system. And it's about recognizing that the ideal society is flexible and adaptable conceptually. Yeah, that's so interesting. I want to come back to that in a minute, but I'm just struck by what you're saying. We, we, we want to work towards an ecological civilization where there's some sort of connections and interdependence and so forth. I'm thinking about people who would be opposed to this, perhaps, who might hear what you're saying and suggest that that means that we'd be sort of taking humans down a step, that they were not as important, that we shouldn't focus on humans individually or collectively above ecological systems. How would you respond to somebody who has that sort of perspective? That's a very good question. I think, I think two things. I think, first of all, anybody who wants to claim that like humans should be taken down a step or anything like that is is not recognizing a fundamental truth that humans are just special. It's easy, it's easy to bash us because we've done a lot of harm to this planet and it's easy to kind of like say, oh, humans, it'd be so much better if we were just not here at all. But like, as far as we know, at this point in the universe, we're extremely special in terms of consciousness and all these wonderful things that our brains are able to do. So I would like to first recognize that. Like, I do think humans are special. And... I guess the second thing I would say in response to like somebody who's who's critical of this concept is just that like we're also special in that we have the power to to be intentional and we have the power to make conscious decisions about what we want our society and our planet to look like. And given that power, what do you want to do with it? Do you want to do you want to destroy this planet until it's at a point that we that we can no longer survive or do you want to maintain it in a way that allows for mutual thriving? Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for clarifying that. That's super interesting. I want to just build on that for one moment, which is you initially in your first response brought up indigenous knowledge versus sort of Western knowledge and so forth. And of course, there's all any number of indigenous groups, and they don't all think the same. But could you give us a sense of why you invoked indigenous knowledge and, and why that's important in this context? Yeah, I love that question. I spent a lot of my undergrad, as well as my master's, um, focusing on indigenous and traditional forms of knowledge. And I think what's important to know about them is just the pure amount of time and trial and error and thought that it has, is behind all of these forms of knowledge. I think a lot of people kind of like will dismiss them as being, you know, backwards or in some way like lesser than because they weren't formed through the traditional scientific method. But there's so much 
power behind the the literal time it took to come to so many of these forms of knowledge. You know, for example, like it may have taken thousands of years, but an indigenous community in the Amazon has, you know, now discovered that there's a certain plant that cures a certain illness. And that didn't come from nowhere. It took centuries of trial and error to come to that understanding. And we need to respect that. Yeah. So, you know, I think it would be interesting to hear just a little bit about some of the experiences you had working with indigenous cultures. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. So I would say my primary experience working with indigenous cultures would be with the Maasai of Kenya and Tanzania. After I, after I graduated from my undergrad, I very serendipitously met my neighbors and now dear friends, Danielle and David, um, who had just started a safari company called Adumu Safaris um, that centered around the idea that local communities are the ones that should benefit from safari tourism rather than foreign, often European or American investors and businessmen. And David himself is, is Maasai from Tanzania. So he has experienced firsthand the ways in which safari tourism has taken advantage and exploited his community. And the big goal of Adumu Safaris, aside from kind of just generally handing over ownership of the industry to a more Maasai-owned situation, um, the big goal is to actually return ownership of Maasai land to the Maasai. The Serengeti, Ngorongoro, the Maasai Mara, some of the most famous wildlife parks in the world, all generate profits that do not flow to the communities that have rightfully inhabited them for centuries. And, uh, and there's also a lot of current um, turmoil over their rights to even live on that land presently. So that would be, uh, that would be my main experience with, with indigenous peoples is just visiting the Maasai and hearing their stories of, of just exploitation um, by the tourism industry and their struggle against the government for the land that they rightfully own. Yeah. So that's interesting because on the one hand, these are areas that where people have lived for a very long time. And it's also some of the areas with the most interesting and important biological diversity, especially large game, which is why they're doing safaris and so forth. So the, the argument that it's just too many people or that people are the problem isn't necessarily the case, given that there has been this coexistence, which gets back to your point from the very beginning, which is this notion of interdependence between humans and the natural world. And that seems like that had a profound effect on you. And must inform the way you look at the world today. Absolutely. Like, I think the, the, the misconception that people are somehow, like, as a rule, destroyers of nature, whether that be indigenous people or whether that be, you know, a modern urban human, like, I think that separation of people from nature fundamentally does us harm. That understanding of us as separate is one of the one of the chasms, if you will, <laughs> between how we perceive the world and and maybe like the truth. Yeah, and I really appreciate you drawing on this experience and sharing with it. Thank you so much. And that takes us back then to your work currently. And as you said, you work primarily in the economic sphere around uh, the issues around economics, basically. And you've just basically suggested that 
it's not humans, like humans are not designed or inherently destructive. There's something else. And I suspect you might suggest that it has to do with the way we've organized our economic systems. And I'd, I'd love to hear you th- talk about that. Ecosys Wellbeing Economy Program seeks to envision the economy as the way that we provide for each other rather than profit-driven mechanism. It is simply about like the the mechanism under which we produce and provide resources to each other and from each other. So the Wellbeing Economy Program seeks to address the problem that our current economic system prioritizes profit generation over the well-being of people and planet. Instead of attempting to address the symptoms of our current economic system individually, it's about offering an alternative to the system altogether. So, and I want to come back to the details about that, but I want to shift a tiny bit, which is to say the argument then is that the way we've organized our society isn't working for various reasons and, and because of the outcomes we're seeing. And so the society needs to change or transform. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you see social change happening. I think social change is about the ways in which society transforms in terms of culture and in terms of institutions over time. It is about interactions. It's about relationships, about behaviors. It's very relational. Um, and what's fascinating to me about how social change occurs is that I kind of, I kind of talked about this earlier, but I, I think as a, as a society, we're kind of at a bit of a turning point. Historically, social change has occurred haphazardly or randomly or just reactively and, you know, an individual would come up with an idea and it was adopted or not adopted based on a variety of factors. Fast forward a couple thousand years to the eras of kings and emperors and hierarchy generally. And I think social change occurred in a very top down manner. Of course, there's exceptions to revolutions and uprisings and whatnot. But for the most part, like change or even a lack thereof was dictated by the people in power. And today we're reaching a point with technology and with political systems where a broader cross-section of society has influence, has power over social change. As a society, again, we're beginning to make intentional choices about what we want instead of reactive ones. And that, to me, is really cool and exciting. And that's the work you're doing. So can you speak to some of the work you all are engaged in that is intentionally trying to create change in society? Yeah. So I'd love to call on an example um, of, from our well-being economy program, which is the Pomona Jobs Program, which is um, a partnership with the Latino Latina Roundtable of the Pomona Valley, which aims to create jobs not through traditional methods, but rather through what we call High Road Training Partnerships, or HRTPs. As, as an intermediary organization, our role is to bring together beneficiaries and their representatives, like LRT, local government, community leaders, anchor institutions, and bring all these people together to create quality, well-paid, sustainable jobs. Anchor institutions are things like hospitals and universities, which create a large amount of jobs for a community or and are unable or unlikely to leave. So they're really like a stable point in the community from which to, to draw employment. And this aligns with our mission of systemic change because 
the job creation mechanism fundamentally centers around the well-being of the employees and the community instead of centering the bottom line. It really challenges the perception that job creation or loss must be determined by fluctuations in the broader economy and instead creates a more resilient local economy by, again, (laughs) I'm just going to say this word again, by creating a more intentional job creation. Yeah, I love the fact you're using intentional all the time because I think it's so different than what we mostly hear about and most of the strategies. So I love that and I appreciate you reinforcing that time and again. Uh, I'm having a hard time asking questions because every time you say something, I want to go in like five different directions. So I'm going to try to keep this all together, but I really appreciate this. One of the things you're talking about is this really um, specific example, which I love. I'm interested in your notion of social change because your organization is somewhat different than others. It's almost secondary. It, it sounds like what you're doing is supporting other organizations so that the work you're doing is not necessarily specifically about creating an actual change. It's about supporting others to make change. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Or can, can you explain a little bit how your organization works and how it works towards social change? Yeah, I think our, our role as an intermediary organization thematically aligns very strongly with the theme of, of crossing the chasm because it means that what our job is, is connecting challenges to solutions by breaking down the systemic barriers in between. And what that often looks like is capacity issues for grassroots organizations. There's plenty of philanthropic dollars. There's plenty of grassroots organizations doing great work. But what's missing often, and there's there's examples in in kind of all kinds of directions here, but very often what's missing is simply the capacity to connect those two together. Um, and so that's the kind of the role that we play is we, we contact, you know, foundations and, and philanthropic voices and say, Hey, there's this great work that's happening. They don't necessarily have the capacity to put in, you know, hours of work into, for example, a grant application they don't have the capacity to put hours and hours of work into building a really strong board um, and, and things like that. So it's our role to make sure that they have what they need to do the on the ground work and that they can focus on that. And I think it's also a really good metaphor for like what it means to be an ally and, and what it means to be an accomplice um, in, in this work. Because what, what we're doing is not saying, hey, we're going to swoop in and like do all the grassroots work on behalf of the communities. What we're saying is like, hey, we have the resources to make, to strengthen and empower the grassroots organizations that already exist, that already know what they want, know what their communities want, and are tapped into that, to that like voice. What we're trying to do is, yeah, empower and lift up the great work that is already happening. Which uh, it just seems so important. I guess I want, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, yeah the implications of this, because I've been reading a lot about just in general critiques of sort of, you know, the, the NGO industrial complex, the, the fact Absolutely. that there's all these, you know, really wealthy people, but a lot of that wealth is distributed in ways that's intended, some would argue, you know, to get, attention rather than to actually make a change. And I guess I'm curious because it sounds like the work you're doing is the opposite, which I don't, I mean, how do you, I mean, I'm not asking the details, but you're you're not doing something where you could easily show, 
specific outcomes in some ways because it's almost secondary. And that seems like it'd be a hard sell to get people to support you or to take you seriously compared to many other organizations that are all about getting as many members as they can and doing something splashy to get attention. How How is that? I guess I'm curious how that's working. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you, Brian, as someone who spends 50% of her hours on fundraising and development, it, it's not easy. Um, I will have to give major, major credit to our wonderful grant writing um, consultant, Jacqueline, who um, has really found a way to sell what we're doing <laughs> to foundations and to um, broader philanthropy. It's just the way that she um, is able to write and and explain all that we're doing in such a beautiful way. I just I couldn't I couldn't in a million years pretend to emulate her. Um, but <laughs> I think what it comes down to and like how we're successful in it is just having conversations with funders because, you know, once you get them in a, in a room, usually virtual room um, with them and really like are able to express fully and really demonstrate our passion for these issues and demonstrate how meaningful this work is and how important this work is, I think that they're able to see where we're coming from better. So it's, it's about getting in the room, I think, is where we're most successful. The other thing that I will say is that I think in an ideal world, an organization like us shouldn't have to exist. I think I've gotten a lot of criticism from like just people in my life who I try to explain this to. And they're like, that sounds like you're just a middleman. And we don't like middlemen. Like generally it's seen as a very bad word kind of thing. And I think there's, there's something on the nose about that, that like in an ideal world, there wouldn't be systemic barriers between philanthropy and grassroots organizations. In an ideal world that would flow freely and there wouldn't be capacity issues. The reality is those things do exist. So that's why we exist. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the way you'd explain that. And I think that the work you're doing, independent of any outcomes, the fact that you're just trying to support good organizations who are already doing things who can't find resources is is really powerful and exciting. So I, I appreciate the work you're doing and, and the explanation. Uh, you just mentioned barriers and the fact that your organization shouldn't exist, which I really appreciate. I guess I, and, and you've mentioned um, systemic change. Can you talk about what you mean by systemic change or what you all are working towards or how you see it? Yeah. So systemic change, I think is fundamentally about addressing the causes rather than the symptoms of a problem. So like going back to our wellbeing economy program, it, it seeks to address the problem of prioritizing profit by instead offering an alternative of prioritizing people and planet instead of attempting to address individual symptoms of our current economic system it offers a a broader overhaul if you will of the system itself yeah so that's um there's a lot to that obviously and it's not straightforward and i want to get in a few minutes more about the solutions you all are proposing and the work you're doing but before we get to that i guess i'm still a little bit i'd like to hear your thoughts a little bit about 
you know, some people argue that in order to address these things, we need to do just interventions. So we have climate change, we need solar panels. But what you all are doing is slightly different. And one area that I'm really interested in is this whole idea of participatory decision making, which Mm -hmm. sounds to me like is an approach within the intention of having certain outcomes, which again, many people will just say, why don't we just start doing whatever we need to do to fix the problems? But you're, you're taking a slightly different approach. Can you talk a little bit about participatory decision making and why you think it's so important? Yeah. First of all, I do not want to discount the importance of solar panels. I think that like there are certain interventions that we should absolutely just be going for. And there's a certain degree with which climate change is urgent and we need to be doing something about it now. That said, there is a secondary level of change that needs to occur that, again, is on that systemic level. And the I, and I think Ecosiv's view, the best the best way to go about making sure that those changes include the voices of everybody is through participatory decision-making processes. And it intentionally requires the input of a diverse cross-section of stakeholders. And that's what makes it so powerful. Ideally, participatory decision-making incorporates not only, not only incorporates marginalized voices, but, empowers them. Um, And I think I said this earlier, but we like to say this goes beyond being an ally to being what we call an accomplice. When overcoming complex challenges, there's a lot of science that shows the more diverse and inclusive your decision-making process, the more likely your ultimate outcome is to be sustainable and effective and successful. And what that translates to for Ecosiv is a process where our local partners are the ones leading and driving the agenda and the priorities of a project. So the technique that we often employ is called visioning, backcasting, and roadmapping. This is a method through which we incorporate the voices of the community that we're working with, incorporate the voices of our local partners to one, vision, which means identifying local stakeholders' priorities, um, two, backcast, which means identifying the root causes of the systemic failure that we're trying to address. And then three, road mapping, which is about identifying a co-created action plan for projects that lead to those visions that we, that we did in step one while addressing the root causes identified in step two, backcasting. The VBR process allows us to never work directly with on-the-ground implementation, but instead, again, play that role as an intermediary organization that connects the grassroots efforts to the systemic resources and solutions that they need to succeed. So some people might argue that, well, we have a democratic governance system. People already have choices and opportunities to participate in our government, our decision-making you're suggesting that's not the case. And so I guess I'm wondering why is that? And and to what extent does this process really address the reasons why we haven't had that historically? I think that if there's one thing that I took away from 10th grade AP government class is that what we have is technically not a democracy, but a democratic republic. And I could be wrong about the specific words of that, but like the difference is basically like when we vote we vote for representatives that make decisions for us. We don't make the decisions directly, except in the cases like maybe local ballot measures and things like that. What that means is often we don't get the representation that we that we want. 
um, very often you vote and you end up with a president or a representative in some other capacity that doesn't share your views or your values. And, you know, you can make tons of arguments for the pros and cons of various political systems. And like some may argue that the parliamentary system is better or, or whatever, what have you. But I think what it comes down to is that in at least this country, in my view, representatives are given a lot more leeway to empower than maybe is like fair to the voter. Yeah, I think you're making a really important point that we don't spend enough time on, but the decision-making process is essential and most people are not involved. And so part of the work you're doing, I think is essential because you're trying to promote those organizations that are trying to get more participation and voices heard, which is fantastic. That leads us then to the, the sort of the second part of all this, which is what are we doing and why are we doing it and, and how is it going to change anything? So so part of this, I think, is really interesting because we have an, a whole menu of solutions all around us all the time that people argue we can just sort of use at any time and fix things. But it sounds like you're suggesting something different, which is that the solutions have to emerge through different processes and have to address different kinds of problems. And your website talks a lot about solutions and working towards solutions. Can you just, yeah, just explain a little bit or talk about what you all mean by solutions and how you're working towards them? Sure. I think, like you mentioned, solutions to us are something that emerged through a specific co-created process, like I just described VBR. Um, It's about making sure that all the stakeholders have a voice. It's about making sure that solutions are equitable and solutions are sustainable and ultimately we want them to be successful so that that community involvement that community empowerment is just such a key a key part of of deciding what what solutions to push forward because ultimately if your work doesn't have the backing of the community it's just not it's just not very likely to succeed. You know, the people who you are serving have to want what you're offering in order for it to work. Sometimes in communities, people have different views. And you could imagine a specific problem in which two members of a community are just taking diametrically opposed pathways towards solutions. And in some ways, those solutions might be counterproductive. So, I guess I'm I'm asking this conceptually, but I'm also really interested in the practicality of this. Isn't it challenging to get people even to see the problems the same way and to view solutions in the same way? I think that's what's really powerful about the VDR method because you start with visioning and getting on the same page about what a community wants for its future, for its children, for its well-being is actually like such a beautiful process. I was lucky enough to be a part of a little bit of a little bit of it in Pomona last fall and it's so amazing to watch people who come from such different backgrounds actually come together rather quickly and kind of hone in on what they want 
and come together rather quickly. I think it's so easy in American culture these days to think that people on the opposite side of the aisle from you have like some kind of different fundamental values on some level. But my experience is actually just the opposite, that the vast majority of us are on the same page about the vast majority of things. You know, we want safe water to drink. We want healthy food to eat. We want you know, our kids to be safe going to school. We want our parks to be green and thriving. You know, like there, it's a lot easier, I think, than one would assume based on like media and, and based on pop culture. I think, it, I think it's just way easier than one would assume when you actually get people into a room and you actually get them to converse with each other and say, hey, what do I want for my community? It's way easier than you would think to come to a consensus. That's really inspiring. One of the other issues I'm interested in is I love the fact that you had said earlier on that, you know, there's no one way forward and it's about figuring it out. And there's lots of ways of addressing these challenges and, and creating a better world. One of the issues I'm interested in is you're doing a lot of work in local communities, but a lot of the problems are sort of global in nature. How do you see that um, dichotomy or how do you see those linked local work to address in many ways, global issues? How do you see them linked? That's a fantastic question. And I think what is super cool about doing local work is that the connections to the global are way closer than maybe one would initially think. I think that collaboration is a key strategy for social change and there's a reason why they preach partnership in like business school and things like that. But what it what I think what it comes down to is that local work is super important for global change because of replication and scaling. So it's it's a key component of ecosystem programming, especially with the food and water programs, that replication and scaling be a part of our local work. When we do a project, we want to be able to show that it is replicable and scalable. For a broader context. And while, of course, all solutions to any problems must be contextually specific, there are very often elements or lessons learned that can be applied more broadly. And like picking those out, picking out those elements and those lessons, for me personally, is what's super cool and super fun um, about doing local work. Um, Just being able to identify like, oh, this would like this one project in Egypt would has so many things that we can apply to South Africa or, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think what's lost oftentimes is people don't think that their local communities matter because we focus so heavily on global issues. So I think the argument you're making is really powerful for engaging people and, and yeah, changing their perspectives. I'm wondering if you have any examples of the work that EcoCiv is doing in supporting local um, communities that has led to working towards or realizing goals and solutions? I think the example that I'd like to pull from is one that I am maybe not the best to speak to <laughs> at our organization. You could probably 
um, call up somebody else, get a little bit more detail. But it inspires me a lot because I think it speaks to it speaks to exactly the role that we want to be as an intermediary and and how that could be successful. So within the water program, we have what's called the W12 Plus Hubs, which is our primary program for working alongside partner organizations to promote and sustain water security through a participatory process. Our One of our partners is called Water for South Sudan, um, and it's led by this fantastic guy named Salva, who came to the United States, but then ultimately returned to start Water for South Sudan, Sudan and um, work towards delivering sustainable and quality of life services to the people of South Sudan. So it's about, it's about clean water, it's about safe water, it's about hygiene and sanitation and all that good stuff. And the role that we have played is connecting Water for South Sudan to, I, as I talked about earlier, um, to the resources that they need to be successful. Um, and it's just been, it's been so inspiring and empowering for me to watch the water team work on this project because I've seen, I've worked for Ecosip for about two and a half years now. I've seen it go from being just an idea to, you know, come to fruition and, now we're at the stage where we're starting to draw those lessons and draw those draw those important kind of um, elements out and say, okay, what can we take from this and what can we apply elsewhere, whether that be within Sudan or within Africa or globally. And I think that the Water for South Sudan partnership is really like our shining example of how being an intermediary can be successful. So of all the challenges that you face, you as an individual and organization moving towards an ecological civilization, which ones sort of rise to the top? What do you think is the most important, the ones we need to focus on the most? I think for Ecosiv as an organization, our greatest challenge has been communication. We spent a lot of time in this podcast just Honing, on, honing in on what is an ecological civilization and trying to understand that idea. And I think that speaks to like our, our greatest challenge around communicating the idea of what is an ecological civilization effectively and succinctly and in a way that people resonate with. I hope I've done a decent job today of, of doing that, but it is a very complicated and maybe not the most straightforward thing to communicate. So getting that message out there and trying to reach people on a human level, but also trying to reach our, our donors and our, our funder or funding sources and communicate to them what we're trying to do has been in my view, the greatest challenge. And then I'll say on like a personal level, I think, my greatest challenge is often just a very, like, very, I'll be, I'll be very straightforward. It's just like believing that change is possible. For me, like, it sometimes feels like we're swimming through mud and it changes come so slowly and the problem feels so present and so urgent and the solutions just aren't coming fast enough. So 
um, a former a former mentor of mine at Ecosiv gave me gave me a piece of wisdom that I believe comes from an indigenous group, but I couldn't tell you which one. So please Google it. But the quote is, the times are urgent, let us slow down. And I think that speaks to like my particular anxiety very beautifully because, you know, the problem is, is now, but you need to be patient. You need to be intentional. And I'll come back to that word again, because I just love it. <laughs> and that, that piece of wisdom from, from my former mentor, Jeremy, is, is something that I try to take with me um, every day. I have a little post-it right on my monitor. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. And, and by the way, you've been crystal clear and super persuasive. So thank you for that. And I think that's a, a really nice place to sort of end on the sort of substantive part of this. I want to end with just three questions that are a bit more personal, uh, just to give us a sense of where you're at. And, and the first one is, what do you see beyond just what you're doing in your own job and so forth? But what, what do you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy? Oh, easily, easily is just young people. I think I, I'm starting to not include myself in that category because it's, I mean, yeah, it's aging is weird, but <laughs> young people, I think just have so much energy and so much, they're so smart and like the way, the way that like they're leveraging technology and they're leveraging all these different like communication strategies to really achieve change is so inspiring. The second question is, I'm curious because I feel like, especially from just this conversation, you're really open to thinking new ways and and taking in information. Have you read or seen anything or experienced anything recently that really made you think differently or or think more deeply about uh, our society and, and sort of your place in it? The two books that I would recommend are their series. They're called An Absolutely Remarkable Thing and A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green. Not related. Wish I was. Um, Hank, Hank Green and John Green are part of um, a YouTube channel called The Vlog Brothers that has done amazing things in, in the YouTube community in terms of philanthropy and, and social change. And I think they're a wonderful example of what it means to be an ally. Um, but these two books in particular are really, really interesting. They're fiction, but they're really, really interesting because they analyze the way in which social media in particular and the internet and internet culture affects how we perceive the world and affects the way we behave and affects how change is created. Um, in, in the context of like some very fun goings on in the book. Um, so I would recommend those two absolutely as like a fun read, but also just like it will get you thinking more deeply about how internet culture and social media impacts your life and impacts the way that you see the world. Fantastic. Thank you for the recommendation. And then lastly, you know, you, you know, you're, uh, acutely aware of the problems we face. And sometimes that can be quite overwhelming. I'm wondering, what do you do to give yourself a sense of peace and joy? Ooh, that's such a good question. I think my, I'll say, I'll say two things. One, balance is key. And my college friends will absolutely laugh hysterically that I'm saying this because I used to harp on it all the time and not be very good at it. 
but having a, a good balance and solid boundaries around work and play and all of those kinds of things um, is super crucial to me to maintaining my mental health and maintaining my vitality to to be able to do this work because this work is really hard. It's, it can be really draining. And like I mentioned earlier, like for me, my biggest challenge is just believing that change is possible. So like waking up every day and having the energy to put into this work, despite those doubts and despite those fears is really hard. So like recognizing that taking care of yourself has to be a priority and recognizing that if you don't put yourself first, nobody else will. I think is super important. And then the second thing I'll say is like one thing I've been working on in therapy lately is um, honoring my inner child is remembering that that little girl exists and remembering that she deserves joy and she deserves happiness and treating her with that respect. And so like taking the time to do things like, I'm not very good at painting, but I love it. And my inner child loves it. So I do it. Um, and then I also really love to crochet. That's a big hobby of mine. And that really like soothes my inner child as well. So just taking the time to do little silly things like that seem like maybe you've aged out of like, I don't know, going bowling or something like that. Taking the time to do those things for your inner child for me has been extremely healing um, over the last maybe like couple of months that I've been working on that. Well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that open honesty. Uh, it's super interesting. And just thank you again for coming onto the show. It's been delightful to speak with you and, and thank you for making the time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Brian. What a treat it was to speak with Jesse. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks as always so much for listening. I want to thank the producers of Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips and Cody Bayless, and thanks to Anodyne Diversion for the music. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I hope you can listen again. Take care. <laughs>